Hi, welcome to On the Brink, a fresh lens to take you and your business to new heights. I'm Andy Simon. As you know, I'm your guide and your host, and my job is to get you off the brink. I want to help you see things through a fresh lens so you can change. And you know that your brain hates me. The minute I say we're going to change, you immediately shut down, run away and say, oh, no, you changed, not me. But I want you to begin to see things that you can do to begin to um, adapt your organization, yourself, the folks around you, so they can, in fact, live better lives. And today, it's a time for us to talk about this challenge we have of building diverse, equitable, inclusive organizations where people with different backgrounds of any kind can feel like they belong. Now, for setup, my guest today is Andy Kramer. Andy was kind enough to tell her story in my first book about women, Rethink, Smashing the Myths of Women in Business. I'll share with you that I have a new book coming out in September called Women Mean Business, but I'm not going to tell you much more about it because Andy is a very talented lawyer and author who has a new book coming out this May 2023. And the book is called Beyond Bias. She's written several books about it. Let me give you a bit about her biography. And then I'm going to turn it over to her to tell you about her journey, because it's a very interesting one from being told not to be a lady lawyer to being a very successful one. So who is Andy Kramer? She's regarded as one of the foremost authorities on the regulatory tax, commercial and governance matters that arise for individuals and businesses in trading environments. She's represented multinational corporations, financial services firms, exchanges, trading platforms, hedge funds, she's smiling, all kinds of companies. They're typically dealing with securities, commodities, derivatives, all types of things, ESG matters, and non-traditional assets, merging asset classes of all types. Really, really smart, wonderful lady. She's respected for her multidisciplinary knowledge concerning legal issues arising in the markets and all types of products that trade in them. I'm going to skip around her bio a bit. She has spent 30 years at McDermott, Will, and Emery, where she established and led the Financial Products Trading and Derivatives Group. In my book, we talk more about how getting into uh, McDormand, Will, and Emery was an interesting experience, and what she's done there since has been an interesting one. One of my favorite stories is how the men all there climbed the Empire State Building and saved the damsel in distress, and the women all worked well together, and they kept their jobs. So uh, she learned early about being a very successful, talented woman in a man's organization and industry. She's been co-author of many books, and she was also named by the National Law Journal as one of the 50 most influential women lawyers in America for a demonstrated power to change the legal landscape, shape public, shape public affairs, launch industries, and do big things. I love that. The National Law Review recognized Andy as a go-to thought leader, and J.D. Super Readers voted her the top author in cryptocurrency tax taxation. We're not going to talk about cryptocurrency today, but that's an interesting topic by itself. She's known for her longstanding work addressing and dismantling workplace gender discrimination. And she served as a member of the Diversity and Inclusion Advisory Board for the Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism and was co-author of What You Need to Know About Negotiating Compensation, a 2013 guide published by the American Bar Association. With her lovely husband, Al Harris, she's written two award-winning books, 
Breaking Through Bias, Communication Techniques for Women to Succeed at Work. And the book that I have behind me, It's Not You, It's the Workplace, Women's Conflict at Work and the Bias that Built It. With that in mind, that's sort of the setup for today's conversation. And I, have, I, I will tell you before the podcast begins, I just love Andy Kramer, and you will as well, in part because she's tackled the legal profession and our society with both hands up and ready to go. And now she keeps wanting to help it change. So with that, Andy, before I talk about your new book, let's talk about your own journey. How did you get going in this? Why is bias and bias management such a critical part about who Andy Kramer is? And how are we helping women and organizations change, which is what I love. Andy, thanks for taking Well, well, thank you very much, Andy. If we get confused, all we have to do is say Andy and we've got it covered. (laughs) Um, uh, My journey started... Uh, when I was um, 12 years old and decided that I wanted to be a lawyer. And my parents only knew one man who was a lawyer and asked him if he would do some uh, career uh, advice for me. And when I met with him, he spent the entire lunchtime talking about why I did not want to be a lawyer because no one liked lady lawyers. No one would ever love me. I would never have a family. I would always be alone and life would be terrible. Um, obviously, I paid no attention to him and I went forward and um, uh, did become a lawyer and have been for many years. But he really touched on something that is important in the context of what we have to do about the workplace for women and what we can do to do better. And that is that he touched on what my husband and I refer to as the Goldilocks dilemma, which is that women who are nice and kind and sweet are playing two stereotypes and are expected to be nice and kind and sweet. But if we're strong or tough or get this done or I need this by this time period, we're too tough and no one wants to work with us. And so this man talking to a 12-year-old was actually touching on some of the issues that we still have today in today's workplace, which is that women are expected to be assumed to be and punished if we're not nice and kind and sweet. But if we're to get this done and I need this and I need it now, then not just the men, but the women too don't want to be working with us. And so that leads me to Andy's original question is, you know, why am I doing this and how did I get in this space? And the answer to that was that once I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, I put my head down and I was fortunate enough to be able to make that happen. Um, we could talk about how Title IX actually is what probably allowed me to get into law school, because before Title IX, um, uh, women were uh, excluded from consideration. And so um, that's a topic for uh, another day. But the reality is that when I joined this huge, big law firm, after having started my practice with a group of people that could not have cared if you were purple polka dotted, if you did a good job, everybody wanted you on their projects. I'm now in an environment where the fact that I was a woman, what am I doing in a corner office? The fact that I have a two-year-old 
daughter at home, obviously I don't care about my career. So these stereotypes are clashing. And I started to see what stereotypes and biases do to women in the workplace, especially when the workplace is large and people don't know you. And so they rely on the stereotypes and the biases that they've grown up with and are comfortable with. And so I started when I served on our management committee and then on our compensation committee. This is uh, um, what uh, Andy was alluding to. The very first thing I learned was that the men would talk about how in their self-evaluations, how they would have climbed to the top of the Empire State Building, circled around and rescued all the damsels in distress, and they're cool, and they are owed all the money and all the promotions. And the woman who came up with the idea that saved the client all the money would write her self-evaluation talking about how she was on the ABC team and she worked with so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And so what I learned then was that there are special rules about how women and men are expected to communicate with each other, how we're punished if we don't, Mm -hmm. and what we need to do to actually move the needle for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that is to go after the stereotypes and the biases and basically root them out. Now, you and I have talked so much about these things. Your first book was about um, women could communicate better. It's a good setup and segue from what you just said, because those women who were providing you with self-evaluations were providing you with a story. And the men's story and the women's story were very different stories about how they saw themselves, saw each other, and performed. You know, it's like a stage. They had different roles and they played them differently. Now, if you want to leave it like that, you can. But I don't think that that's the most constructive way for us to build a better organization, tapping into the talent that women bring and men have. So now we're looking for a new model, a new way, a new story for us to develop. Your first book was about how to help women, you know, shift the way they saw themselves and communicate. Am I correct? Yes, 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 absolutely. Um, if you're dealt a gender-biased workplace, how can you play cards in that with that deck? Yep. You know, with that hand. And in that book, what did you share? What we did is we realized what we did is we found that. Before we could talk about what women need to do and can do when interacting with other people, we devoted the first part of the book to what women can, conversations that we can have with ourselves. And those conversations are about uh, confidence and um, positive mindset and resilience and having what's what's referred to as a coping sense of humor. So that all of these things that we can marshal to have a conversation with ourselves about what we can do as to how we're going to go out into the world and interact with other people. So that's sort of the first part of the book. And then the second part of the book was, okay, now we're interacting with other people. What do we do from the standpoint of... Um, uh, verbal and nonverbal communications. Because, for example, very often <clears throat> women will will sit at a table in the old days when we used to have lots of meetings, sit at the table, 
And when people would be coming in late, the women would be squishing up ourselves. We would be, and the guy who had two chairs because he had put his suit coat on the second chair, he's not paying any attention to who's getting squished at the table. He's not offering to move his chair, his 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 suit coat off of the second chair. And so what happens is women, space is power. And women, we would give it up very easily. Men tend to um, uh, gesture away from themselves. That makes them look bigger, more powerful. Women tend to gesture towards ourselves. And so all of these sort of nonverbal sorts of signs that are saying who's powerful and who's not. And then in the communication itself, what happens is because of the stereotypes and biases, because women don't want to be perceived as too hard, we don't want to be perceived as um, getting punished for being too uh, in your face, basically, we couch things to try to, well, maybe this is a bad idea, but, well, it's not a bad idea. She doesn't think it's a bad idea, but she doesn't want to say, I have this great idea. So maybe it's a bad idea, but, or I'm sorry, nine million times. And so what we'll do is women will find ways to try to send a signal that we're not trying to be in your face. And what happens is then the message that we're sending very often is we're not as competent, we're not as confident, we're not as talented as somebody who's prepared to tell you to your face that they are competent, confident, and talented. And part of the challenge for women is that as you have been, as you grew up, um, you learned and you mimicked others who played roles. And I do use theater often as a metaphor. And so you look, whether it's on the screen or it's on your TV or it's at home, and those are the models that you are being mentored by, even if it's not understood or intentional. So you Mm -hmm. pick up those styles of behaving a long time before you knew that you were behaving that way. An alternative style hasn't emerged for you because you're not going to mimic the guys and be looked at as a bitch or, you know, as as somebody who's very tough. You really want to find something in between that plays up on the intellectual and smart side while still having um, an intentional approach to it that others will hear you. Part of it is how you present. The other part is how they hear you. And that becomes part of the challenge. Your second book, It's Not You, It's the Workplace, was a really interesting setup for the new book. Now, quickly tell us a little bit about how we went from how you can change your conversation and style to the workplace understanding of it so you can begin to think it. And then we'll talk about your new book and the um, the PATH program, which I think is just a brilliant way of applying it. The second book was It's Not You, It's Your Workplace. You found? Well, what happened was when we were talking about, writing about, speaking about the issues that what women can do to overcome gender-biased workplaces, um, we were would hit with a lot of resistance, a couple of things. One was, why do women have to change? And the answer to that is, we're not saying women have to change. We're just telling you that you need to know what the cards are that you were dealt and figure out how to play them to your advantage. But the other part of it was women would say, okay, I get it. I understand how to deal with guys now. You're giving me some good points. I got it. But I really hate working with women. 
And that was a shock for me because I've never had any trouble working with women and couldn't for the life of me figure this out. And we started to do some serious research into what's going on in the workplace that makes it that women are prepared to say, I get along fine with the guys, but I hate working with women. And what we found was that most of it has nothing to do with the women other than the fact that in a gender-biased workplace, what happens is there's one spot at the top so that if I'm nice to you, you might take that spot away from me. Yep. There might be um, uh, uh, expectations as to who's going to make it um, in a small group. Um, we also come to the workplace with all sorts of intersectionalities, who we are and what are we coming, what are we bringing to the table? Yep. And so we come with all these suitcases filled with all these stereotypes and biases that we have about ourselves and other people have about us. And so it's not you, it's the workplace starts with, let's talk about a gender biased workplace and how that holds women back and how it prevents women from having the opportunities to grow the way that men can comfortably in, in, a, in, a, in, in the workplace. And then what can we do better to understand each other? And so it's not you, it's the workplace. What we did is we started with, okay, well, let's look at younger women and older women. Let's look at LGBTQ and um, uh, other, other women. Let's look at um, uh, black women versus everybody else. Let's look at Asian women versus everybody else. And so we worked our way through many of the biggest stereotypes and biases that are affecting women's interacting with each other. And that was really what It's Not You, It's the Workplace was about. Trying to say, the problem is not that women don't get along with women. The problem is that the workplace is making it difficult for women to interact with other women. It's a very interesting setup because you don't think of it that way. You think about women having trouble working in a men's industry. Um, but in fact, as you diversify and bring in people of different backgrounds and and uh, you, you begin to create a different dynamic that's going here. When you started to write this book, the new one, um, I really want to talk a little bit about Beyond Bias, because if you if the listener can hear where we're going, um, I got a problem. I'm going to tell you about how you can probably address it. Um, maybe there's a bigger issue here in terms of the dynamics. OK, that's the workplace. And what do we do? The new book coming out is called Beyond Bias. Um, and since you may watch this podcast even afterwards, the new book is out. It's coming in May 2023. Um, but it's a book that you should, if you if you hear this before, then pre-order it. Um, but what but Andy and I are both fascinated by is that diversity, equity, inclusion, little progress. Some people have good jobs, and and they're always the diverse person who has that job as if they have some magic to figure out a solution. And I know so many of them who are really VPs of HR with, you know, global diversity. Um, and they are all a little bit frustrated or maybe not ready to accept the fact that little progress has been made. So Beyond Bias presents a compelling explanation of the reasons for this failure. 
And I think the most interesting part is that Andy and her husband, Al, have come up with a process for addressing it. Now, you have to remember, I'm an anthropologist, a corporate anthropologist who helps organizations change. So when I was asked to review this, I went, oh, my gosh, this is right up the way in which we have to change a culture. You know, it's going from hunting and gathering to a fishing village, and it doesn't know the first thing about how to fish. So. Um, as Beyond Bias makes clear, workplace gender inequality is a systemic problem caused largely by discriminatory, discriminatory operation of personnel systems, policies, and practices. There's a PATH program here. I'll read you what the PATH steps are, and then I'll have Andy tell you about them. The PATH program attacks the structural discrimination, and with it, the individual discriminatory code. The P is to prioritize the elimination of exclusionary behavior. The A is for adopt bias-free methods of decision-making. Now that's important because unless you do that, then women still feel like they can't really talk about ideas or decide and feel comfortable that they aren't getting set up to fail. Treat inequality in the home as a workplace problem. Now, that's a whole separate topic we never quite get to, but it's important because what happens outside of the office impacts the inside. And I actually had a CEO of a company said, I think I have to go to a black church to better understand the people I'm hiring, which wasn't a bad idea. And the last, the H is halt unequal performance evaluations and leadership development opportunities. So. In this wonderful book that's coming out, and I can't wait to read, which I read, um, I'd like Andy to talk about how they came up with this process, because if if it works as well as I think it will, you're changing mindset, attitudes, and behaviors, and ideas are fine, but execution wins. Andy, how did this book develop? Well, what we found was that... Most of the bias, the anti-bias training of the DEI training is these are the stereotypes. These are the biases. They're unconscious. Don't be biased. Well, if it's an unconscious reaction that we have, you could tell me all day long not to be biased and it's not going to matter. (laughs) And that's ultimately what we've seen, which is not that the money's been wasted, but that all of the focus has been on trying to fix the individual and individuals are fairly hard to fix. So what we need to do is we need to have to step back and say, what is it about the systems that we have in place that prevent women from succeeding, prevent the free diversity, equity, and inclusion that we're hoping and paying for and dreaming for, what can we do to change the system so that behavior changes because the system is different? Mm -hmm. And that's what the PATH program does. So we take, for example, the getting rid of exclusionary behavior. Well, it's wonderful that so many organizations now require certain, um, uh, you know, they strive for diversity, they strive for, for people of different backgrounds, not because it's the morally right thing to do, which it is, 
But because the studies all show that companies make more money and are more profitable when they actually have diverse decisions being made. And so you bring in all these diverse people, but you don't welcome them in a way that allows them to succeed. Mm -hmm. So what happens is you bring on these people and you just throw them in the deep end and see whether they're going to swim or not. That's not an inclusive environment. So what we need to do is we need to work towards making it so that inclusion is part of the DNA, the hardwired fabric of an organization. That's sort of the first step. But then what we did is, is we were digging deeper and deeper into this, and it was resonating more and more with us, primarily because of our decades of experience in, in management positions. It became clear that we can move the needle, we can do better with respect to diversity, inclusion, and equity. We can do better if we change the systems. And I'll give you a simple example. Um, I was very involved in the diversity programs at my law firm, the huge law firm that I was at. I've now, this year, started my own law firm. So um, uh, I'm now uh, excited with those changes. But when I was at mega super large law firm, what happens? Well, the stereotypes and the biases of the people who were reviewing the lawyers would come out. He's a go-getter. She needs her hand held. He's you know, he's he's so busy that he doesn't have time for it. Well, she just doesn't get her work done. So that the exact same behavior would be characterized differently depending on the lens of the reviewer. And so what we did was we got rid of all of those open-ended questions about, you know, is this person, you know, good for the job? And we instead put in core competencies, which would require an evaluation of how do you actually do in the role that you're assigned. And by getting rid of those open-ended questions that would allow the reviewers to say whatever they wanted, if they had to actually evaluate the people for something that was viewed as a competency, the world changed. The way that these evaluations were being done was changed. And so what we found is that even little tiny things can make dramatic differences in the way that we approach diversity, equity, and inclusion. And now a word from our sponsors, Simon Associates Management Consultants. That's us. And we're here to help you see, feel, and think in new ways. Whether you are an organization that's stuck or stalled or an individual in that organization who's looking to rethink their own life's journey. Simon Associates has designed programs and processes to help you do just that. Our first book, On the Brink, A Fresh Lens to Take Your Business to New Heights, told the stories of seven clients who were stuck or stalled, and a little anthropology helped them see things through a fresh lens, reignite their growth, and soar again. My new book that came out in January 2021 is called Rethink, Smashing the Myths of Women in Business. It's all about how 11 women, including myself, were able to see past the hurdles, the glass ceilings, and the brick walls and become the best that they could be. They heard things like women aren't lawyers and women can't lead. 
and women aren't in geosciences. And they said, of course we are. And they really pushed through and did it with such ease that they want other women to see what's possible. At the end of the book, I provide a bit of a how-to process for you. If you're on the brink of rethinking your own life's journey, it's time to pause, step back, and ask yourself, where am I going? What's my passion and my purpose? And am I there or can I get there? Send us your emails to info at andysimon.com and we'll get right back to you to see how we can help. On andysimon.com are some free chapters for both books. And you can also join our newsletter and our Facebook group, Rethink with Andy Simon. We are bringing together women to help other women do what they can't do by themselves very often to see what's possible and become the best that they can be. Come join us. And now back to our podcast. Now, as you were doing that, were there, I mean, your PATH program has four steps to it. Mm -hmm. And we know that the behavior is the important part, but you also have to visualize, experience somehow what that behavior is actually supposed to mean. I have a friend who has a $150 million company and she's tried to make it completely, you know, equitable so that you have men and women, people of different backgrounds, but she's had to teach them how to talk to each other and actually had to show them how to have a meeting where the women and the men could each have enough time and, and they could also listen to each other's ideas without judging them. And until they could see what she was talking about, it was an anathema to men. You know, of course we're doing it when you're not. Take a look at the video. You're not, right, and, of course you're not. And, it, and when you're not and you see the video, oh, I didn't really mean to do that. <laughs> until all of a sudden you realize that I haven't changed anything. And that's what I need to begin to change and then reinforce. Because if I don't get a, you know, a pat on the back for doing it well, um, a hug, a smile, something that says, well done, your brain isn't going to remember that's what you're supposed to do. So we have to be humbled by our brains. But on the other hand, you have to see it in order to understand what it is I'm supposed to do. So the four steps were intentionally designed to help you move through that process, I'm expecting. Yes, exactly. And interestingly, um, the way that we've set these, these steps up is that you can succeed with small wins. So that it's not a, and that's your pat on the back, at a girl, at a boy, let's go for it kind of a thing, which is that we need to be reinforced. And so the world wasn't going to change overnight by just taking away the ability for some senior guy to write about how, you know, he's the the young man is going to make something of his career and she's a loser. You know, that's not going to change the world. Um, But you got to start somewhere. And one of the other ways about eliminating um, uh, discriminatory kinds of evaluations is is very interesting because if you just prevent people from having in their face, this is a diverse person, this is a diverse person, miraculously, they don't see that. And so one of the examples is that um, many of the symphony orchestras in the 70s were almost all white men. And as soon as they started doing the um, auditions behind a curtain, miraculously, women and people of color were being added to the yes. um, 
the symphony. And what we can do is in the context of just considering a resume, if <laughs> we get rid of the um, name, the the characteristics that are, are gender specific or um, ethnic or, you know, flag racial, one thing or another, it turns out that the women get more chances to actually talk about what they would do if they had the position. And so there's little tiny steps along the way. In each one, you could get a gold star if you wanted. Um, you could view these as, as progressing and acknowledging that not everybody is going to dive in with both feet to do the full path program. We've set it up so that each one could be a module. Some of them could be done fair, pieces could be done quickly, other pieces can be done over time. But when you're encouraging people and they're seeing some success and feeling good about it, miraculously, they're eager, more eager to go to the next step. Now, I will say, this is not easy. No. And, uh, and and we must be humbled about the fact that humans are cultural creatures and we give meaning to things. There's great research that I uh, did a podcast about came out of Stanford, where if you gave people designs or buildings or products and you said a woman built it, um, they didn't think much of it. You said a man built it. They thought it was terrific. There's so much that in our society has to be um, changed. Uh, but it's also a small win at a time, so that there may be a battleship and you're oaring your way forward, but there's a destination, and we can see that that light out there, because slowly it's happening. Remember, 40% of the attorneys today are women, and that means that you got almost half, over half of the doctors are women, over half the dentists are women, 65% of the accountants are women, and then there's a sea surge coming. And there's more women who are getting onto boards and women who are in the C-suite slowly but surely. And when they do, others see that it's possible. You know, McKinsey's uh, Women in the Workplace 2022 said it's a great breakup. Women are leaving and they're saying, bye, don't need you. And they're coming and they're doing wonderful things, a little like Andy did when she set up her own law firm this year. It was a time to be on my own. But this is a time of change. And I think the most important thing is that you begin to keep moving forward, not go back and not simply say that's just the way it is, because it doesn't have to be. And I do think that the guys who support us, both your husband and mine have been great supporters. We've been supporters yes. of each other. And I do think that begins to build a better alignment. Um, because I'm watching my daughters and their husbands have much better alignment. Are you seeing changes in the Gen Zs? I don't think the Gen As are moving up yet. Maybe the Gen Ys. Are they? I know they're more intermarried. I know there's more um, acceptance of diversity. You seeing anything there that gives us hope? What a good question. Um, I'd like to believe so. Um, the the most recent studies though show that. Um, uh, the young men are just as biased as their fathers. Yeah. Um, and so I, I don't think that age is going to solve the problem. I think we really have work to do. And I think you made that point at the beginning about how it's not easy, but things need to be done 
And um, I think that there may be less resistance to it by younger people because they're um, they're growing up in, uh, in an environment where they're expected uh, to be assumed to be and punished if they're not diverse and, and and willing to be more open. But in the quiet of their own space, um, that's really where we have to see the changes. And in talking about behaviors, uh, what we did in, in Beyond Bias is we really looked at what we put together is three sort of core stereotypes that and biases that the biases that grow from the stereotypes. And one is affinity bias, which Andy, you're obviously you you could teach a class on it about how we believe that we're um, you know we like people who are like us. Outgroup bias, which is that we don't like people who are not like us. Yep. Gender bias, which we've been talking about and, and is obviously a key part of our books. But there's also other biases that we talk about in, in Beyond Bias. One of them is called status quo bias. And we're prepared to defend environments, situations, workplaces that are not good be, just because they're there. Yes. And so the interesting studies will show that just to prove to somebody that they could be better by making a change is not enough to overcome the status quo bias. You have to prove to them that it's two and a half times greater benefit to them. And so we have a resistance. We have people who at the top who are saying, it's not broke, I don't need to fix it. We have people who are saying, Maybe it's broke, but I benefit from it, so I'm going to be quiet. And then we have people who, it hurts me, but change is scary. Yes. And there's also a lack of trust that the new is better than what is. We know what is. I know how to deal with it. My day is pretty well structured. I can get through it. If there are microaggressions, oh, I figured out how to deal with those little dudes I have a friend who's um, president of an insurance company, and she always tells a story about being the coat girl. She said, it didn't matter what meeting I went into, the guys all gave me their coats to hang up. Um, I went to Lloyd's of London to bring them a client, and they gave me their coats to hang up until I went in front and said, let me tell you about the client I brought for us to do. Um, and, you know, and and then there's the stories um, that Sheryl Sandberg talks about women who sit on the sides and don't come up to the table. To your point about making space, um, mm-hmm. the behavioral transformation of our society. Um, I, I wonder whether the hybrid workplace has created opportunities for transformation in a different fashion, because the virtual meetings the research says that the women still can't say anything. <laughs> oh, they still can't. They still can't say anything. Well, I'm personally ambivalent, but believe that the studies are going to show that women need to be where the action is. And in many workplaces, they can't just be at home or they will be left behind because out of sight, out of mind. I agree. And so we have to worry about that, even though it might be more comfortable, convenient or whatever to be working at home. So we have to keep that in mind. 
Um, the other thing, though, is that people, her being a Coke girl, well, you know, I can't tell you how many cups of coffee I've poured at meetings, how many times, um, you know, I've been asked to to do one thing or another. But in our book, one uh, Beyond Bias, uh, Breaking Through Bias, one of the things we recommend is if you're the one who will always get told to go, go pick up the phone and call for this or call for that, don't sit by the phone. Don't be the one who, you know, don't make it easy for them to just make that assumption about you. Well, and that comes from setting the stage early on about what's acceptable or not. Right. Those are are important conversations, and you have to do them in a way which doesn't build animosity, but collaboration. And those are important words. And I'm doing, as I do my leadership academies, the words collaboration, coordination, creative problem solving, you know, are all as important for the guys as the gals. And they Absolutely. do um, but they do them. You know, Andy, we could talk a lot, but I think it's time to wrap. When the book does come out, or they can buy it now, it's available as a pre-order on um, on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think all the books, all the online bookstores have it. Good. We'll make sure it's on both the blog and the uh, video. It's called Beyond Bias. And um, it's going to be a fabulous book for us to read. You can read all three books. Won't hurt you at all. But now the thing is, once you've read the book, how do you do something? And we're both big fans of small wins and pilots. What I love about pilots is that let's see we can visualize where we want to go. A diverse workforce that feels like they're being treated equitably. And there's an inclusion. So when we go out for beers at night, we ask the women to join us, even though sometimes it's hard to do. Um, Mm -hmm. Or conversely, we figure out ways for them to do things that we join there. Um, But it's interesting to be intentional about it and to find small wins. And every time you do celebrate the win, because your mind remembers what it celebrates. So if you really want to make the changes stick, you have to do both a vision of where you're going, a visualization of it, action towards there and celebrate. Just take those things to Andy's path program and begin to watch the organization move because they can see where you want to go. And often I find that they don't know what words really mean. What does diverse mean? What does equitable mean? What does inclusion mean? What does belonging mean? And we can keep talking. Andy, thank you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure again. Well, thank you very much for having me. I've I've enjoyed um, the conversation and hope that we can make that path forward to eliminating um, gender inequality in the workplace. Well, and I'm sure Beyond Bias will do just that. For all of our listeners and our viewers, thank you for coming. You keep sending me great people to interview. I happened to meet Andy through somebody who interviewed me and said, you got to talk to Andy Kramer. It's been great, great colleague to have and a friend to know. Yeah. Um, info at andysimon.com gets your inquiries right to us. We enjoy listening and reading them and finding new people to bring to help you see, feel, and think in new ways. And remember, my books are available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and anywhere else. And um, they're really cool. People do keep coming back and saying, that's a really cool book. So I share my coolness with you. Uh, And Andy's are there too. Goodbye, Andy. Thanks so much. Goodbye now.